Failure is normal in a fallen world. And much as we can see the change for the better that the gospel brings, Christians still fail. We still see Christian failure. Christians sin. Now we're not talking here about Christians being irritating. Your neighbour's irritating behaviour may in actual fact be that you are irritable and there's nothing wrong with your neighbour's behaviour. We're talking here about sin. It's something more than just offensive things that people do in an office or in a train or at home, things that we have to deal with. But in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, as we just read, Jesus is talking about sin. That rebellion against God and his ways that leads us to act contrary to his laws. That rebellion against God ruling our lives that lead us to fail to love God with all our hearts and to fail to love our neighbour as ourselves. Christians have a care and responsibility for each other and for each other's sinfulness. So in Galatians we read, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. However, as you can see here, most ancient manuscripts of Matthew's Gospels have the words quite clearly, sinning sin against you. That means Jesus was not talking about sin in general and looking after a Christian brother who is in sin and seeking to restore them. Jesus is talking about your brother sinning against you or you sinning against your brother, about lying to one another or cheating each other or stealing from each other. How do we deal with this Conflict, these real conflicts between Christians when we actually do sin against each other, when we fail to love each other as we should and in fact mistreat each other. Well, before we see Jesus' teaching, notice the common failed ways with dealing with failure. First and foremost is talking about you and not to you. Christians are interested in people, especially other people, and so talking about others is a natural part of being in the Christian community. But somewhere, genuine caring conversation about others turns to gossiping about each other, and gossiping turns to slander. At some point in our conversations, we, we tip over into talking negatively about each other talking about the grievances that we have with each other, talking about how we are innocent and they are guilty and so we denigrate and speak ill of Christ's children, our brothers and sisters. We even slander them and defame them. So what we should really do is not talk about them but talk to them about their sin against us. Don't grizzle to everybody else about the dreadful thing they did to me, but talk to them about the dreadful thing that they've done to me. For talking about it with others only increases the problem, spreading it beyond ourselves, putting us on the high moral ground of being without offence, while putting our, our brother, our sister down in the eyes of others. 
to offload like that can initially make us feel good, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. And worse, it has every opportunity of spreading the problem, making it worse, and indeed stirring up ill will and dividing the community. It's the old saying, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, then don't say anything at all. But of course, the old saying's wrong because it's permissive. It doesn't address the issue, but avoids it. When one of my quick-witted 11-year-old grandsons came into his mother's room, she gently pointed out to him that he'd forgotten to do up his fly, to which he immediately replied, Mum, if you don't have something nice to say about a person, then you shouldn't say anything at all, quoting her favourite saying back in her face at a particularly apt and interesting moment. He was hardly sinning, and he was not sinning against her. But there are times when it is important to speak up and to correct somebody, and especially when they are sinning against you. Holding grudges, keeping your anger, allowing it to fester into malice, is not spiritually healthy, either for you or your relationship, or ultimately for the other person. So often we see people, especially in families, acting like volcanoes, putting up with sin, putting up with sin, putting up with offences day after day, week after week, month after month, even year after year, only to finally explode in an avalanche of criticism and complaints and uncontrollable rage over all the things that have happened over the last few years and it all gets poured out in not taking action against sin can make problems grow and develop till they become unmanageable. And and this is not just personal. Uh, You can see this in churches and organisations. So worldwide Anglicanism has winked the eye at sin in clergy for decades, only to now be completely gutted by the open, flagrant denial of the gospel found not just amongst the people and the clergy, but the bishops. Unfortunately, church history is replete with stories, not just of those who were permissive, but also of those who were censorious, the other end of the spectrum. Those churches and denominations that are constantly on the lookout for sin, that they can challenge and correct and condemn. Sometimes people find their moral self-worth in not being as sinful as the people that are around them. I may be sinful, but I've never done that. I wouldn't go and do that. It's, It's like the water polo player who can rise high in the water by pushing down the people around about them. And there are individuals like it also, parents that are a great discouragement to their children rather than encouragement to their children because they always constantly are correcting them and finding faults with them. And hypersensitive souls who keep finding fault in other people, forgetting the wonderful image of Jesus that we must take the, the log out of our own eye before we try and remove the speck from our brother's eye. So without becoming permissive and ignoring sin, especially sin against ourselves, or becoming censorious and finding fault in everybody all the time, 
What should we do when our brother sins against us? Jesus gives a four-step answer to help our brothers restore relationship and deal appropriately with sin. The first and foremost step, important step, is to speak privately to the person about the matter. How many fights would have been dealt with and solved if people had just followed this first step first? Sometimes there's no sin against you, just misunderstanding and bad communication. Sometimes there is a sin against you, but the person has overlooked and underestimated the seriousness of the matter or the hurt that you are feeling and can apologise. Sometimes there is a sin against you and the other person doesn't know how to raise the issue without causing greater hurt and offence. If only we would follow Jesus' step one first, we would defuse many a fight and quarrel and war before they ever got underway. But notice the spirit in which you must go to your sinning brother and the outcome that you're seeking to achieve by going to him. For you are not to go in order to chastise him or to punish him or to express your superiority over him, but in order to help him and to help your relationship. See Jesus' lovely words in the second half of verse 15. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. The aim and goal is to gain a brother, not to offload your hurt. Sometimes people fail in the first step not by being permissive, but by being censorious. They go to their brother to put him in his place to place him under judgment rather than to help him and to restore him into his rightful place in our heart and in our love and in our family. But what, will he, what do you do when he won't listen to you, when he's stubborn and ignores your request for reconciliation? That brings us to Jesus' second step, that of witnessing. The word witness involves three things. Firstly, seeing and observing something. Secondly, speaking and testifying to it. And thirdly, opposition. You never bring a witness in when everybody agrees. You bring the witness in when someone disagrees and you need to confirm the evidence, confirm the argument. So if somebody will not listen, well then you're to take one or two witnesses with you. It could be witnesses to the offence. Or it could be witnesses to your conversation so that your attempts at reconciliation can be seen, observed and assisted. But you don't take the whole community with you. For conviction only needs one or two witnesses, according to the Old Testament law. So you choose some reliable person or persons to discreetly join you in helping your brother or sister come to repentance and forgiveness. It's like the little passage in Galatians. I wonder if you'd turn with me to page 1162 in Galatians chapter 6, page 1162 in our cathedral Bibles here, page 1162, Galatians chapter 6. And that opening paragraph of Galatians 6 is a lovely little passage. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbour, for each one will have to bear his own load. That is a beautiful little passage that well requires the study that we should give to it, except we're in Matthew 18. But notice the aim is to restore in a spirit of gentleness. You don't go harshly to your brother in his sin. You go gently and you go humbly, lest you too be caught up in sin by the way in which you have gone to him. And you never think of yourself more highly. I haven't done what he's doing, so I'm going to tell him. There but for the grace of God go I. There's nothing that anybody in this room will do that I am incapable of doing. I have to understand my own sinfulness if I'm to restore him in gentleness. And your concern is always for the other person, not for yourself. Don't go with a spirit of I demand justice. Go with a spirit of I want my brother to be helped. It's a very different spirit. But when somebody is stubborn and still will not listen, then and only then do you follow the third step of dealing with it publicly by taking it to the church. When the issue has reached this far, we are generally in great difficulty as the hope that the person will listen decreases with each step in the four-step program that Jesus is outlining for us here. There's no mechanism spelt out here, whether you take it to the elders or to the pastor or to the weekly congregational meeting or call a special extraordinary general meeting or something like that. There's no mechanism as to how to do it. But however it's done, the church must be wary of two things. One, of jumping in to interfere with zealous passion and two, of cowardly sweeping the matter under the carpet and pretending there's no problem here. Too often churches have failed to deal with sinful breaches of fellowship between our members. Equally often, churches have dealt too quickly and harshly with sinful breaches of fellowship between our members. Let me illustrate with the two extremes that have come to me. First is the church where a man was brought before the elders for chastisement and warning because he was deemed not to be able to manage his household properly, especially his wife, because it was noticed by the pastor that the evening meal was being served after 7pm at night. That is bizarre, that is cult-like, that is weird, to put it mildly. Second is the church where two married members of the committee were having an openly acknowledged adulterous affair with each other and when a new minister discovered and questioned it, the minister was reported to the bishop for his narrow-mindedness. You see how far churches can get it wrong, can't you? Here's one couple living in open adultery who are the church wardens of the church and here's the other man, he's having dinner after 7pm at night and so he's called before the elders. The extremes are just so bad. You, you, 
makes you want to cry. You don't know. I mean, how can you get it that wrong on either side of the coin? But return to Jesus and to the fourth step. What if the person won't even listen to the church? Then verse 17 says, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Again, notice, you're not to rush to this solution. This is the last step, not the first. Some people are so quick to defriend anybody and everybody who irritates them. This is not a passage about defriending irritating people. This is about somebody who is sinning and is unwilling to listen to the brother or to the witnesses or to the church of God when the brother is seeking reconciliation. Furthermore, it's not a passage about excommunication. The church is not called upon to do anything here. The passage says nothing about kicking him out of church. There are other passages in the New Testament that we could refer to that will talk about the church taking some action, but this passage is not about that. This passage doesn't give a mandate to church to discipline anybody like that. In fact, it's a strange little conclusion for three reasons. Firstly, the word you is singular, not plural. Let him, it's not let him be to the church as a Gentile or tax collector, but let him be to you like a Gentile and a tax collector. You personally. You have done your work in seeking to restore him. It's failed. So let it alone. Give up. Leave it. Don't pursue it any further. You've done what could be required of you for his sake. There is no point persisting with it. Your aim never was to get justice. Your aim was to help him. There is no help he is going to receive from you. Drop it. Forget about it. Secondly, the way you are to treat him is strange. It's such a Jewish way of saying it. No longer treat him as a brother, but as a stranger to the gospel, like a pagan and a sinner who will not repent. Uh, the Jewish nation was called upon to be different. The Bible's word for it is holy. They were not to intermingle with the Gentiles, with the Canaanites, with the, the Palestinians that were living there already. They were not to intermingle with anybody other than Jews. And they were not to worship with them. They were not to eat with them. They were not to marry them. The Pharisees took this further and further and further, insisting that if you ever even so much as met a Gentile, then you had to wash your hands and you, you, couldn't, you couldn't have any connection at all. It's strange to our ears that Jesus would use this language to describe having nothing more to do with someone no longer treating somebody as a Christian. It just seems to be a strange way to describe how to treat an unrepentant brother. Yet, friends, sadly, and it really is very sad, there is sometimes the step we have to take. Though even here we may take it in the hope that they will see the seriousness of their sin and so return and be reconciled. Which brings me thirdly to what is so strange about it, namely to ask what was Jesus' way of treating Gentiles and tax collectors? 
I've got to treat this person as a Gentile and tax collector. Well, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? It wasn't the Pharisees' judgmentalistic way. Their way was of superiority. Well, at least I'm not like this dreadful tax collector. I mean, I've, I've done things, but I'm not like that. I'll have nothing to do. I won't touch him. I won't go near him. Jesus' way of treating Gentiles and tax collectors was quite the reverse. It was the extension of a saving hand with a call to repent. And not approval or the tolerant relativism of today of saying, oh, well, I know we're in disagreement here, but I respect you anyway. But it was the hope of salvation, the call of repentance, to leave all and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So in treating the unrepentant person as a Gentile and a tax collector is to treat them as an unbeliever, not as a brother. And how do you treat unbelievers? Well, by sharing with them the knowledge of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that they may return and be saved. While you may not share with an unbeliever as you would a brother, you may not share at the Lord's table or in membership of the congregation together, yet you will still seek to bring the saving message of salvation to him and prayerfully hope for his repentance and salvation. What does the scripture say we should do with our enemies and for our enemies? Pray for them. Pray for your enemies. The Pharisee denounces his enemies, condemns his enemies, rejects his enemies. The Christian hopes and prays that the Spirit of God will change their enemies and bring their enemies forgiveness and mercy and grace from God and reconciliation back with us so that we can once more be in harmony with each other. We, we don't continue to press our case. We've pressed our case. We spoke personally to them. We took the witnesses to them. We brought it before the church. They disagree. Sometimes I need to think, maybe I've got it wrong. But even if I'm not wrong, there's no point putting the case any further. That's as far as it could go in this world. Now, I must pray for him. Pray that God will have mercy on him. Pray that he will have a change of heart. Pray that there'll be an opportunity somewhere down the track for us to have a reconciliation. But I need to let go of it. I must not go on living in victimology. There is no future in that. All I'm doing is punishing myself over and over again. It's got no future. Doesn't help him, doesn't help me, doesn't help the cause of Christ. That's got to be the wrong way forward. Nor into judgmentalism. Everywhere I go speaking ill of this person, that doesn't help the cause of Christ or me or that person. Now I need to speak to God about them. And where I get opportunity, invite and encourage them to know the grace that is in the gospel. This is because in the action of Christians is divine judgment. For in preaching the gospel, we are binding people and loosing people from their sins. 
It's an extraordinary thing that we are doing. First told to Peter back in chapter 16 and now to all the disciples because it's not just Peter and his successors in the seat of Rome who have this authority. I'm not sure Peter was the Bishop of Rome, let alone his successors inherit his authority. I think the papal claims are ridiculously wrong. But even if they were true, it's not unique to Peter. It's true of all the apostles, because the same thing is said here, that where, where you, whosoever sins, whatever you bind on earth, verse 18, will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's an extraordinary thing we're doing. As we work in calling upon people to repent and as we declare to them the judgment of God and as we declare to them the mercy and forgiveness of God, so God in heaven is bringing judgment and bringing mercy upon them. It's in the work of the gospel that heaven and earth interact today. And the disciples of Jesus and their gospel work in declaring the gospel in all its opposition to sin and in its merciful victory over sin, that heaven is engaged with earth today. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The promise of verse 19 is not about prayer in general, but the two or three witnesses to the truth who will be heard by God the judge. For Jesus is with us. When we gather in his name, he is there. So that the work we are doing on earth is the work that is happening in heaven. So when we challenge our brother about his sin, when we pull two witnesses in and the three of us challenge him about his sin, when we take him to the church about his sin, so he is being brought to the judgment seat of God and of Christ. We have in this passage then, love in action. Throughout the conflict, the concern is always for what is best for the other person, not ourselves. How to deal with their sin by removing any breach between them and God and between us. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, that's what we're aiming for. As Jesus put it in verse 15, you have gained your brother. As Paul put it in Galatians 6, bearing one another's burdens. If I care for my brother, it's love in action. It's not love in action to talk about him rather than to him. It's not love in action to ignore his sin as if it doesn't matter. It's not love in action to jump down his throat at every minor fault that he has. But it is love in action to speak to him privately about it in order to win him back. And to take others with me in order to win him back. And to tell the church in order to win him back. And to treat him like a Gentile in order to win him back to God. Here is our task. It sometimes binds people in their sin. For that is God's aim and purposes. It sometimes looses people from their sin. 
For that is God's aim and purposes. And he is using us to bind and to loose as he wishes. As we bind and loose on earth, so he is doing in heaven. For when two or three are gathered in the name of Jesus, then Jesus is with them. What a motivation there is here to love them. That we may free them of their sin and bring them to eternal rest. How different it is for most people in conflict who want to win their point, who want to establish justice, who want to be vindicated, who want to condemn. Are you not glad that God is not interested in condemning you but forgiving you? If you, like me, are a person of forgiveness, that is, by the forgiveness of God I stand, not by my own merits, then I must become a person of forgiveness and forgive my brother and my sister as freely and generously as God has forgiven me. And so I don't forgive by just ignoring sin as if it doesn't matter, but whatever action I take in the conflict is aiming at bringing repentance and forgiveness, not in vindicating, not in repaying. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. It's not for me to be involved in that. I'm involved in preaching the gospel of grace and mercy and forgiveness that they might come back to God and back to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection for us, that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. We thank you, Father, for this, because we deserve your condemnation, and yet you have mercy upon us. And we're sorry, Father, that we sin against you and against our brothers and sisters. We're sorry for our failings and pray that you would give us by your spirit the grace to repent and apologise and to seek to be reconciled. And Father, you know the hurts that we suffer from other people using us, abusing us, not treating us properly. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give to us that same generosity, that same graciousness, that same mercy and forgiveness that you have that our concern would be for our enemies' salvation and not for our own feelings, that we may speak to them for their benefit, that we may bring witnesses and the church to them for their benefit and not for ours, and that you would give us grace and wisdom to know how to do this. And we pray too, Father, for your spirit to take away from us those hurts that can't be resolved in this world, knowing that you are in control and all things will come to you and be dealt with by you properly in due time. So, Heavenly Father, we do pray for your help. We beg your mercy that there be no conflicts amongst us, but when there are, Father, we beg that you would enable us to do as our Lord has taught us, 
that we might bring honour and glory to him, even in our conflict. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.